Janet Etweiler, and I invite you to come and join me as we take a pause in our busy day and pursue soul care, as we allow our bodies to slow down and our minds to be renewed with goodness, truth, and hope. This is PRN. Pause. Renew. Next. Welcome back to our new attachment series. I am getting such great feedback from you guys, and it is so helpful and encouraging. If you missed the first episodes of this series, I encourage you to go back, but specifically before jumping into this podcast episode, which is talking about the second two of the insecure attachment patterns, I encourage you to go back and listen to the episode on secure attachment, as well as the one that came out last week, Insecure Attachment Part 1, where we talked about the anxious ambivalent attachment pattern. You guys, before we jump in today, I just feel like I need to give credit where credit is due. So I want to tell you where I'm getting all this research from. The primary sources, I mean, I've gotten them from lots of places, but the primary sources are Kurt Thompson, Adam Young, Jeffrey and Amy Ulrich, who, by the way, are going to be on the podcast in a couple weeks, and I cannot wait to share that with you. It is going to be so good, so, so good, as well as Karen Purvis and the Empowered to Connect information. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, I'll try to link to all that in my stories or on a post this week. And don't worry, when I finish the series, I will link to all my resources as well in my show notes on the very last episode. So speaking of Jeffrey Ulrich, he has been an attachment researcher. And one of the things that he says and reiterates that I want to make sure I say at the beginning of today's episode, just like I did last episode, is that these attachment patterns can be fluid. They're on a spectrum, so we can go in and out of them. It's not like you get put in a bucket and you have to stay there for the rest of your life. So I just want to put that out there before we begin talking about today's episode and the insecure attachment patterns, because I really think that they can create a lot of anxiety for people. If you listen and you think, oh no, this is me, or oh no, I'm doing this to my kid, and it's a hopeless situation and I must be doomed. No, no, no. It's all very fluid and a lot of things can change. And we're going to be talking about that more so on next week's episode. So hold on. There's lots of hope. I just want to put that out there. So as a review, insecure attachment, remember that there are two instincts that are going back and forth all the time. One is that our kids want to be able to come to a safe, secure base, a caregiver who loves them and cares for them and that they can seek refuge from in moments of distress or when they need help or comfort. And then when they get those needs met, they feel free and equipped to go out and explore the world and do their thing. And that should be a fluid coming in and going out as the needs arise. As we talked about the first of the insecure attachment patterns last week, anxious ambivalent, the people in that pattern often get stuck in refuge seeking. They have big emotions, They want to keep their caregivers close because their caregivers are not always consistent about being there or not being there for them emotionally. And so rather than feeling like they're free to go out and explore and do their thing, they often feel like they need to keep a close eye on their caregiver or in close relationships. There's a lot of anxiety. Today, we're going to be talking about anxious avoidant, and they are the opposite of that. They get stuck in exploration mode. Now, before we talk about that, I want you to hear me say, did you notice the first one is called anxious ambivalent? The second one is called anxious avoidant. How confusing. I think that's why most people get them confused. Like which one's which? What's going on? Because they both start with anxious. 
The reason for that is because both of those kinds of kids are anxious because they're not necessarily getting their needs met. So there is this internal anxiety that is pretty constant in those relationships. Because remember, when we're in a safe, secure relationship, our emotions get regulated, we feel safe. When we're not getting those needs met, we might not. So rather than continuing to say anxious, blah, 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 I'm just going to call it ambivalent and avoidant for the most part. You might hear me say the other, but let's just remember ambivalent was what we talked about last week. Avoidant is what we're talking about this week. The avoidant attachment pattern develops when a child's caregiver is unavailable, dismissive, or rejecting. Then the child develops an avoidant attachment, or rather we could call it an avoidance of attachment of those close emotional bonds. It develops when a child becomes distressed and then his caregiver does not provide sufficient comfort, care, or connection because the parent is not emotionally attuned to their child. So when an infant tries to communicate that they're distressed or that they need something, their attempts may not have a lot of effect on the parent or not the desired effect at least. So then the child is left to try to calm themselves down and figure out how to regulate their own emotions. For an avoidantly attached child, it's easier to figure out how to regulate his or her own anxiety than to try to seek comfort from a caregiver who's not really responsive. The message is, mom's either not going to understand me or worse, she's going to dismiss me. They develop a really independent mentality, which is adapted to avoid constantly getting evidence that no, there really is no one there for them. Because if you don't ask for help, then no one can dismiss you. Or worse, belittle or make fun of your need, aka stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Kurt Thompson really says this well. He writes, We can grow up in homes in which the food finds the table, the money finds the college funds, and the family even finds the church each Sunday. But somehow our hearts remain undiscovered by the two people we most need to know us, our parents. Kids with an avoidant attachment pattern learn early on that it's fruitless to wait on others to meet their needs, so they stop trying to express what they need and want. If you listened to my episode on authenticity a couple of weeks ago, this is probably sounding very familiar. Children with an avoidant attachment begin having trouble telling their caregiver that they need refuge, that they need comfort when they're feeling stressed. Instead, they act like they're fine, and then they get stuck in exploration mode. If there is no refuge, place to land, then instead we turn our attention elsewhere. The core message is, I'm alone and on my own. I don't need you to be there for me. I'm fine. They become self-reliant, independent, and strong because they figured out that they don't really need anyone. No one's really doing that much for them. I mean, they might be meeting their physical needs, but emotionally, they are not really. The way these kids adapt is by avoiding closeness and emotional connection to their caregiver and then maybe to other people who are close to them in their lives later. They have an avoidant attachment style because they literally avoid attachment. It's just too painful to hope that their caregiver or a person who loves them will suddenly become available, accepting, and responsive. So they try to numb this desire for connection and shut down that longing for attachment. They may become disconnected from their desires because if you grow up in a home where you don't talk about deep things, you talk about surface things, then you might not think your desires really matter to your caregiver and you get disconnected from them. You might fail to develop a good sense, a good deep sense of your own hopes, dreams, and longings. Most notably, 
these people become disconnected from their emotions. So mothers or primary caregivers of children with avoidant attachment are often disconnected from their own emotions. It's not like they don't care or that they're bad people or that they're heartless. It's just that they've probably learned from their caregivers that emotions don't matter. And so they've learned to function that way. The dilemma with this is that a child learns to develop their own inner emotional world through exchanges with their mom or their primary caregiver. So if a mom doesn't have a rich inner emotional life, then a child can't develop one either. If we think about what the purpose of emotions are in relationships, it's really to bring people close. It's to let people know what's going on inside of us, what we're rejoicing about, what we're hurting about. But if you grow up in a house where emotions don't bring people close, then you don't really have a need for them. Emotion might actually become a place of shame or even of weakness in your mind. So unlike kids that have ambivalent patterns and are stuck in refuge-seeking and trying to keep people close with their emotions, people with avoidant attachment find no comfort in seeking refuge, and so they get stuck in the opposite, in exploration mode. And that brings us to the strange situation. The strange situation, in case you need a review and you don't have this memorized by now, was an experiment that Mary Ainsworth did, watching children who were 12 to 18 months old with their primary caregiver through a series of events where mom would leave and the child would be by themselves, mom would be there and they'd be playing together, a stranger would come in, mom would leave, stranger would leave, baby would be by themselves, and then mom would come back and they'd be reunited. And through watching all these interactions, the nuances, even the facial expressions, Mary Ainsworth, along with her research team, developed the four patterns of attachment. So as a review in secure attachment, these babies were distressed when mom left. When she came back, they were soothed and they could go back to playing. So again, that fluid back and forth, back and forth between I need comfort because I'm in distress, back to shifting my attention to exploration mode. With the ambivalent kids, they were distressed when mom left. But when mom came back, they were not easily soothed and they could not shift their attention back to exploration mode. They kind of got stuck. With the avoidant attachment, what they found is that these kids had their attention focused more on the objects in the room than on their caregiver. So they were absorbed in their play. They were absorbed with the toys on the floor. Almost like I heard it said, mom was a lamppost. There wasn't a lot of eye contact. There wasn't a lot of talking back and forth. They were doing their own thing. When mom left, they didn't look particularly distressed. When she came back, they didn't need a lot of soothing. Again, their attention was focused more on the objects around them. And they've learned to use that as a way to cope or distract themselves. Here's what is heartbreaking, though. When they checked these babies' diapers afterwards, these kids had the highest level of cortisol in their diapers. And cortisol is a hormone for stress. So on the outside, they didn't look distressed at all. But on the inside, they had more than any other group. And that is heartbreaking, you guys. That just makes me need to cry. Those poor little babies. Because even though they may not be showing emotions and they may not be in touch with their emotions, their bodies are saying a whole lot about the fact that they really do need comfort. A really easy way of thinking about it, and I get this from Crispin Mayfield. It might be a little too simple, but I think it's kind of a neat way of thinking about it. 
is that in secure attachment, the message is, I'm good, you're good, we're good. The message with ambivalent attachment is, you're good, I'm bad, I need you, and maybe I can be good too. With avoidant attachment, the message is, you're bad, I'm good without you, I don't need you. So actually, people with avoidant attachment do fine. In fact, they do great in situations that don't demand personal connection. These people are often very successful, especially in the business world, because they can focus on the task at hand. They don't get distracted by all the emotions and the personal drama stuff. From the outside, people see them as strong, thoughtful, laid back, kind of unshakable, probably great problem solvers. And here's how this happens inside. I get this from Kurt Thompson. People with avoidant attachment learn to dismiss input from their right hemispheres, which is the part of our brain designed to help us translate emotional signals from our own bodies, like what's going on inside of us, as well as interpret nonverbal communication from other people like body language, tone of voice, minor inflections or changes in facial expression or tone of voice, anything like that. So to compensate for that underdeveloped right side of the mind, they actually overdevelop their left hemisphere and rely a lot on the benefits of logic, linear, and literal processing. So they value the words people say to them, like the actual concrete words but often miss body language, facial expressions, and tone of voice. Here's an example. A husband might interpret his wife's silence to mean that actually she just doesn't have anything to say and move on, rather than thinking, oh, she might have her feelings hurt, or she might be a little anxious, and that's why she's quiet. When they're grown, as an adult, we don't call this avoidant attachment anymore. We call it dismissive because you dismiss your emotions. These people are less likely to empathize with other people because they've dismissed their own emotions or avoided them. And then it's easier to pass that on in your relationships and even in your attachment with your kids. To be honest, this is the most functional of the insecure attachment styles. Because again, unless you're in a close relationship with somebody, you might not know you're even missing out on anything. Because in the workplace, they can be really successful From the outside, they look incredibly successful and they can really succeed in life in a lot of ways. There is a high rate of workaholism among people with avoidant attachment, Um, but generally they're like, I'm fine, I'm good. I'm just gonna do my own thing. I don't really need you that much. So here are some signs of avoidant attachment in adulthood. I get this from Adam Young. They might feel more comfortable with distance and separateness, like doing their own thing. It doesn't bother them that much. If you do your own thing, they enjoy relationships at times, but they never really feel like they need other people. They're really independent. They focus on the cerebral and the analytical to avoid pain or longing of missed emotional connection with other people. They can recall all the facts about their life, you know, like where you lived, your school, your first car, but they might have difficulty recalling memories of family experiences where there was actual emotional engagement, like around the dinner table and like a time that mom was sad or something like that. They often really idealize their parents, talk about them in general terms without going into detail because they don't want to connect with how bad it really was. It all stays really surface. They minimize or downplay hurtful attachment experiences. 
They believe that family life has little or no effect actually on how they turned out. Like they're the way they are because they're the way they are, not because anything happened in their family. And they insist that the past has little to no influence on what's happening with me right now in my present life. So if you heard me say any of those things and it feels like you or it feels like maybe somebody you're in a relationship with, then hold on uh, because we're going to be talking more about that in the next episode about earned secure attachment and maybe beginning to shift or heal from a tendency towards this attachment pattern. But one way you can start, just like I talked about in the episode on authenticity, is to begin to notice, to be curious about your own emotional life, your own emotional experience. What do you feel? And when do you feel it? Even beginning to trace that or track that opens up a door to begin to notice and develop those parts of your brain, those parts of your soul that maybe you've kept shut down for a long time. And if you're wondering why you would even want to do that, <laughs> which you probably are if you're in this attachment pattern because you're functioning just fine, <laughs> then don't worry. We're going to talk about that as well in next episode about earned secure attachment. Okay. I know this episode is going a little longer, but I wanted to go ahead and finish both of these up in the same episode. The last pattern is called disorganized. And you guys, of all the different patterns, this one is seriously the most heartbreaking. It is sad because these kids really are the most impaired relationally and in a lot of other ways. This attachment pattern is pretty rare. It's seen in high-risk populations, especially in situations where there's abuse, any kind of abuse, physical, sexual, in places and situations where there's neglect, extreme neglect, or where there's a significantly impaired caregiver, such as one who's into substance abuse. And this attachment pattern, these kids have a deficit in their ability to use a caregiver for either side, for refuge seeking or for exploration. There is no secure base. And the reason for this is because God designed us to go to our attachment figure for safety. But what if our attachment figure is not safe? And that is the predicament that these kids find themselves in. So if you are hurt and you need to go to somebody, but the person you need to go to is the person who makes you afraid, that is what creates this disorganized attachment pattern. And in all the other patterns, there actually is a pattern. This one actually isn't a pattern. It's kind of other in a way. Because obviously, secure attachment is the healthiest of the attachment patterns. But avoidant and ambivalent also can be successful in a way because there is a pattern. There's a relationship strategy that they've used and that has been successful for them and that they continue to function out of. With this one, with disorganized, there's not a pattern because they're always stuck in a paradox. And that is why it's called disorganized. There's no organization to it. Rather than having a secure base... These kids take on the role of parent in the face of danger or stress. You know, just like in all the other ones, um, these parents report that they really love their children. You know, most, I mean, there are really bad people in the world, but for the most part, most parents really do love their kids. But these caregivers appear oblivious on how their actions prevent their children's minds from formulating a coherent sense of the world, a coherent sense of safety. 
These kids are unable to calm themselves because they don't learn how to regulate. There is not a pattern to that. So if I'm in distress and I can't go to my safe person to help me regulate, then I never figure out how to do that. This leads to abrupt erratic affective shifts, so like mood shifts, impulsive or excessive behaviors, like big behaviors. And in the strange situation, there was no clear pattern to the way that these kids acted. All the other patterns are organized and successful, but this one isn't. So instead of, you know, crying when mom leaves, being soothed when mom comes back, or crying when mom leaves and not being soothed when she comes back, or just focusing on the toys, these kids had mixed messages that they were giving. So for instance, here's a couple of examples of like mixed messages and how this could look, although it looked different in each situation. They're walking towards the caregiver, but they've got their arms facing backwards. So like I'm moving towards you, but my arms are like, no, 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 pushing back. Or I'm moving towards you, but my eyes are on the floor. Like there's a mixed message there between like, do I want to go to them or do I not? It's very, very heartbreaking. My goodness, it's so sad. Kids that grow up with this attachment style um, almost always end up with mental health disorders, behavioral issues, etc. Um, I actually think of this as correlating probably with the ACE scores. So if you don't know what ACE is, it's Adverse Childhood Experiences. So they, they look at that as being a certain, if you have a certain number of really traumatic experiences in childhood, your chances of lifelong health, mental health disorders go up dramatically. And I think that's exactly what we're talking about with this particular attachment style, because the person that should be providing them with security and helping them through times of transition, even trauma, may actually be the source of their pain, hurt, or fear. These parents are often frightened themselves, and they don't know how to regulate their emotions, and in turn, they then frighten their children. Um, this could look like schizophrenia. It could look like severe bipolar disorder, substance abuse, neglect, deprivation, all kinds of things. And in adulthood, we call it unresolved, like unresolved trauma or loss. As kids, they look angry. They can't really regulate their emotions. They have big behaviors. As adults, it may also look like some pretty serious mental health disorders, personality disorders maybe. Um, when they give their story, it is incoherent. Um, it's kind of like in a jumbled fashion. They might jump through time or skip skipped big parts of their stories that have to do with trauma. And this actually correlates with the lack of connection that they've developed in their own neural networks because that those parts of the brain that were responsible for social organization probably didn't get developed because they didn't learn those skills from their parents. And when they become parents, they also have a high likelihood of passing this form of attachment on. With these kids, the internal message is, I'm bad. There's a lot of shame associated with this attachment pattern. So if there were any form that is, you know, the saddest, I would say it is definitely that one. However, just like all the other ones, there is a possibility of healing from it, but it probably is going to take some serious work. And I would really encourage, if you think that this was you, that you went through a lot of serious issues like that, and that's how you felt in your relationship with your parents, that you definitely seek out a therapist of some sort to begin working through that and get some, not just help, but probably some tools for how to learn how to emotionally regulate yourself how to 
have healthy strategies in relationships because maybe you don't know. Maybe you never got taught how to do that. And that may be a good and safe place to start. Okay. And I want to end today on a hopeful note, and that is with our scripture of the day. Today, we're going to read from John 17, 20 through 26. And these are red letters. They're Jesus talking to his disciples right before he leaves and really talking about us, you guys. And so as I read, I want you to listen for those secure attachment patterns. Jesus says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can all see the glory that you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. What secure attachment patterns did you notice in that? In this particular passage, we hear, not only is Jesus connected to us, and he is, and he talks about that over and over again, but he's connected to his Father, like he is safe in him, and therefore we are too. We are safe with Jesus, we're safe with the Father, just like Jesus demonstrates that he's safe with his Father. So if you want to go back and read that again, I really encourage you to do that, John 17, 20 through 26. And that's the end for today's podcast episode. In next episode, we're going to talk about earned secure attachment. Woohoo! It's the good stuff, you guys. So I hope you'll meet with me back here next Tuesday. I'm Jenny Detweiler with PRN. Pause, renew, next. May you be encouraged on your journey with Jesus. Thank you.